You know, you're not going to be uh, assessing an injury and going, man, they just had way too much hip strength. That's really what the problem was. It's like, so yeah, I mean, get all the hip strength you want. It, 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 it is a, you know, when you look at the biomechanics of it, the hip does, does play a role. The problem is, is that the hips without the quadricep creates some pretty bad situations for, for a specifically a, uh, somebody returning after an ACL reconstruction. Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. To join the forum or for potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on the website. This podcast can also be found on your favorite podcast platform, and if it allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so that we can get this information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. On this show, we are joined by co-host Jared Maynard, who is a clinical athlete provider and the clinical athlete continuing education director and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and a competitive powerlifter himself. And we have our other co-host, John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and the powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. And we are very excited to welcome our special guest on this show, Eric Mara, who is a physical therapist in Portland, the creator of the Science PT website, host of the PT Inquest podcast, and is extremely active with leadership roles within the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy. This is part one of a two-part interview on all things knee and science. Enjoy the show. John Flagg, what's up, buddy? Nothing much, man. Happy and very excited to be talking today yeah this is gonna be a good one jared how are you i'm good man hunkering down also excited for this conversation yeah as am i so as of um like 8 p.m last night the entire state of california got the shelter in place uh mandate so we're just we're just chilling out getting acquainted with home leaf blower in the background with a leaf blower in the background sorry about that the, the grocery stores are still open. But you know what I realized? I realized that this is probably going to be in place for a couple months. At least, that's what the governor said. And mm-hmm. I haven't gotten a haircut in a couple months. And that's going to be another. Like, my hair is going to be long. I'm going to have to bring back Shade the afro, it. man. Ooh. That's what I thought yeah. about. That's what I thought about. We are also joined by Eric Mara. And I'll allow Eric to speak more about his background, but I'm just hopefully going to make him and everybody else uncomfortable right now and just gush a little bit because Eric is, uh, he's got a a website called the science PT and he's a practicing physical therapist in the Portland area. And he's also, 
a lot of our listeners are probably familiar, our six listeners, with the PT Inquest podcast. And if you're an OG, the PT podcast. And that's what got me down a certain track of thinking. And that was back in 2012, I think, is when you guys started that, the PT podcast. And then PT Inquest just kind of grew out of that. But I'm not exaggerating when I say those those podcasts, your website and your blog um, changed the way that I view certain things because I was in my second year of physical therapy school, kind of going into my third year, and I was having that kind of existential crisis that, that students sometimes tend to have where they're you know inundated with a bunch of information and they're not quite sure what to filter and, and you know what sources to trust. You're in school, so you expect the information to be closer to the truth, but you know, you read other things and sometimes it's not. And, and, um, your information truly, truly helped me and helped the way I think. And so for me, it's like having one of your heroes on the show. Like you're on our podcast now, which is pretty cool. So Eric Mara, thank you for being on the show. Oh, I, I, that's very high praise. I, I really appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we, I, I started uh PT podcast in 2011, late 2011. Okay. I recorded a bunch and then uh, we started uh, PT Inquest, which because JW is one of my first interviews on PT Podcast, um, we decided we were going to put that out uh, at the beginning of 2012. I think it was in February of 2012 is when it started. And so, yeah, we've, we've been doing it for, I guess, eight years now uh, continuously. And, and, you know, as, as you said, uh, I, I had similar experience going through school, you know, way back in the 90s where, you know, I'm, I'm listening to a lot of things. And I, I grew up with a very in a very scientific household my 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 mom's a school teacher my father was a, an, an electrical engineer and it was there are a lot of things where i'm just like this this doesn't make basic scientific sense i mean this is this doesn't sound right and and not really getting the support of people people you know encouraging that kind of thinking and so one of the things that we decided to do is basically like plant a flag, you know, not to try to change the way anybody thinks necessarily, but to plant a flag and say, hey, we're over here thinking this way. And if you're also having some of these same questions, let's explore this together and see if we can have some good, honest conversations around uh, some things. And and the way I put it is I'm not trying to change the profession. I'm trying to corrupt the youth. So, <laughs> Well, and PT Inquest is a very simple uh, format. It was a... It, it, it was a journal club, and but what I loved about it is that no matter the topic, because you know you always brought it back to the ACL, obviously, if even if it was a paper about Duh. the low back, yeah. So, and regardless of the topic, it was also about thinking through basic principles about the uh, applied practice of science and and evidence based medicine. You know that whatever that term means to you, but it was. It was learning through those principles where it didn't really matter what the paper was about. That was almost secondary, and that's what I and that's what I loved about it. And it, it would just get you thinking. And I think it's it's perfect for students. And uh, I always recommend. It's always on the top of my list for any any podcast that I would recommend. And w- to get you on the show, there's a plethora of things that we want to talk about, and they all kind of dovetail nicely into e- each other. But before we get into some of these topics. Can you tell our six listeners, in case they're not familiar with you, a little bit more about yourself? What's kind of led you to your current interests, to what you're doing now, and those types of things? Well, um, 
Yeah, I've, I've been a I've been a physical therapist uh, since uh, the mid '90s. Uh, I, I actually was a student athletic trainer at the University of Florida with their football program. I like to say that the first year I was with them um, was the, their first national title. So I have to assume that was my fault. Um, Causation. I, I kind of exactly. And so I, I had one of those careers where I kind of bounced around a little bit. I was never really happy at any place because every place I worked, you know, it was, you know, the volume of patients was always things that I wasn't particularly uh, interested in, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, chronic low back pain. Um, I actually was originally interested in that, um, but I realized very quickly, and, and I don't know why this seems to be like a new idea, but. It, it, back in the 90s, it was pretty obvious this is a psychosocial issue. Um, and I remember writing my 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 final paper in PT school uh, where I had to spend, you know, this is it's not before the Internet, but, you know, our library databases, you had to go to a physical library to look up your your research. And we actually had a psychology library that was separate from the medical library. So I had to go there and I remember that was what my, all my my thesis was on was was the psychosocial aspects of of back pain, and again this is back in the '90s. And so I quickly realized that a lot of what we were doing in PT was not particularly, I guess, interesting to me regarding that. Um, I'm a physical therapist because I really enjoy biomechanics and, and human psychology, and there's no other profession that puts the two together. Um, and so I ended up kind of becoming fairly focused on hip mainly because there was a lot of questions around you know this what was a novelty of the young you know the young adult non-arthritic hip uh, which we now have a lot of information on so um, once I realized that there was kind of a dead end there because there's also a decent amount of psychosocial around that too I found myself really getting focused more on ACL rehab in particular the nice thing about ACL re rehab is although we still have a lot of questions, there's still a lot of uncertainty. We publish 1,300 to 2,000 articles a year on the ACL. So there's a ton of literature out there to really go through. And there's a lot of pretty good conclusions that we can draw there. There's still obviously a very strong psychosocial. I mean, we're humans. There's always a psychosocial component. But to me, uh, the uh, ACL, uh, specifically the knee and then more specifically the ACL, is really a, a, a fascinating uh, kind of survey of how physics applies to, to the human body. I think that's a great segue to the ensuing conversation. And just to anchor that a little bit, you teach courses and you, you've taught internationally, you've done that for years, but recently you've, you've put some of those out in an online version and we wanted to kind of allow the, those topics to steer the conversation. You've got one that's applying science to practice. And I thought, well, let's talk about that. But then I said, well, those are just principles that are kind of intertwined within all of these other topics, too. So I think those principles are probably going to come up naturally as you apply these scientific principles to w what we're doing. And then you've got your other course on the knee that's now in an in online format and I thought that that would actually be a great place to create some concrete examples based on some of these uh, topics that we'll, that we'll talk about. And ACL is a good example because of what you just mentioned. There's a ton of, of literature out there on that. So our first topic, or at least mine, and I want to get your thoughts on it, is there's this pendulum swing in ACL land, it seems like, and really knee land, patellofemoral pain, 
Is it, hip, is it the hip or the quad? Do we want hip strength? Do we want quad strength? Uh, well, if we just look at the point of pain, you know, the knee, and just look at the quad, well, we're missing this regional interdependence piece. And, you know, the, so the pendulum swings over to the hip, and the hip controls the knee, and then, you know, maybe it swings back. But, I, you know, kind of getting your take and, and narrowing this conversation down, because I've heard you say time and time again, it's the quad until it's not the quad. So would you mind expounding on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, and there's a lot to unpack there um, because people get that mixed up to say, so quad strength, and, and it's like, well, if you want me to get pedantic about it, I'm talking about knee extension, knee extensor dysfunction. Uh, now, that could be uh, that could be limited by fear, that could be limited by patellofemoral pain, that could be limited by patellar tendon, uh, general deconditioning. There's so many things that can limit it, but it is how does the quad interact with the world and can it interact with the world is really – really kind of that question. And so, you know, what we get into with, with that type of thing is, you know, when people say, well, is it the hip or is it the knee? It's like, well, look, it, it's not what I always tell people is I, I don't care what you're doing. So if you're doing a ton of hip strengthening, I, I don't care. Honestly, if you're doing a ton of, I don't know, Reiki or something, I, I don't really care. What I care are the things that you're not doing. So as long as you're addressing the quadricep or that knee extensor as a, as a, uh, as a, uh, component, then you can do all the other stuff you want. You know, nobody's going to be, you know, you're not going to be assessing an injury and going, man, they just had way too much hip strength. That's really what the problem was. It's like, so yeah, I mean, get all the hip strength you want. It, 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 it is a, you know, when you look at the biomechanics of it, the hip does, does play a role. The problem is, is that the hips without the quadricep creates some pretty bad situations for, for a, specifically uh, somebody returning after an ACL reconstruction. And this is difficult to do, I think, without a kind of a mental representation or, or some type of image, but you can actually, you have a blog about this in, on your website, and it's titled uh, Why Quad Index Matters. And so could you talk a little bit about some of the biomechanics when, it, when we're talking about the quad and what the quad's job is, and let's say in a deceleration task versus the hip. So why is it important to have the quad as a, as a kind of a ground level foundation? Okay, um, so uh, the, the simplest, you know, we can get into, you know, Newton's laws, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. So if you have force going into the system, um, you don't want to overwhelm the system with force. And so the best way to have an effect on uh, – th th there's, there's a few ways you can have an effect on it. Um, we'll, we'll talk directly mass times acceleration first. So if I'm going to reduce the amount of force coming in, one of the things I can do is is uh, change the amount of acceleration or deceleration that's happening. And so when you think of acceleration as velocity over time um, or change of velocity over time, essentially, when you allow – and people understand this. You know, if, if you hit something very stiff, so like if you – you know, uh, the example could be if I hit you with a baseball bat – or I hit you with a Nerf bat, one of them hurts more. 
even if they have the exact same mass and I hit you with the same velocity. The difference is that one gives, so it allows a stretching of time to occur, which reduces the amount of force that's going to go into it. The other one does not give. And so one of the, the, the best ways that the human body can kind of give is at the knee. So you think of the knee as a shock absorber. Now, in order for the knee to do that, it has to have a fairly strong quadricep in order to absorb that. Um, now, the problem when it comes to, to ACL in particular is that if you're not flexing at the knee, you have to flex somewhere and you end up flexing typically at the hip. And so this is what's known as a hip strategy. When you use that hip strategy, what ends up happening is that you end up with a very, very stiff knee. You can only absorb so much uh, force at the hip by going through that strategy. And this is where, you know, where I'll say is I'm perfectly fine with somebody using a hip strategy as long as they're also flexing their knee. So they're getting shock absorption from two different joints instead of just one. If you overload the hip in the sagittal plane by flexing the hip, then you'll have to find another plane of movement that typically is going to be internal rotation. And this is your, your classic valgus. You go into internal rotation. If you leave the knee close to straight, and you go into internal rotation, you're essentially putting all of the load right into the ACL, and this is how you end up with the, with an injury. So it's kind of a twofold effect by having that quadricep. And again, I'm talking specifically people who have torn their ACL. When we talk about people who have no history of an ACL injury, this stuff does make sense, but I don't know that the literature 100% supports it. I, I, I can get into that if you guys really want, but but you know, it's it's you know, some of these conversations can get fairly long. Um, but what we see is basically a, a failure of the shock absorption system. And by having a quadricep, you're able to allow both flexing of the knee as a shock absorber and also flexing of the knee to get away from that super dangerous 25 degrees of flexion where the ACL takes the vast majority of the load uh, during, uh, during any kind of algus. As you're going through that, you know, thinking, oh, this, the capacity of the quad to resist an external flexion moment, just that, that, that internal extension torque, having that biomotor capability, then affects the movement solution down the chain. And I think a lot of times that thought process is flipped, where you see somebody doing a deceleration task or a drop uh, jump or some type of landing thing, and you see a, a valgus or some type of uh, injury risk mechanism, and then you try to correct the mechanism by simply cueing or doing whatever, and then having them repeat the movement. And it seems like that's where we get into trouble because we haven't actually identified the individual constraint that's underlying all of that stuff. Would you, would you agree with that thought process, or what, what's your take on that? Yeah, and so that's where you know I, I I teach a lot of dynamical systems theory when when going over this and 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 I will like to highlight I am not a mathematician I am not an expert on on that concept, but as I understand it, basically you know when you look at at when you look at somebody moving, what you have to tell yourself is this organism unconsciously chose this solution to to uh, to a problem and that's what movement is and so this this series of, of things that all came together to present with this movement strategy if, uh, for lack of a better phrase um, 
so you have to ask yourself, why did it, why did it select that? You know, we're not talking about a stupid, <laughs> you know, organism. We're not talking about a stupid human brain either. We're talking about a very complex interrelated system that is self-regulating, self-correcting, doing all these things there. And it's choosing this, this strategy as a, usually in the name of efficiency, so to speak. And so a lot of times if you see somebody using that strategy, you can you can try to coach them out of it, but the reason they're selecting the strategy is uh, very likely you you have to test it to see very likely that they lack the capacities to do the strategy you're asking them to do. So before you ask somebody to do a strategy, you have to kind of take stock of what the person's capabilities are uh, individually. So like we we're going to look specifically at the quadricep. And I'm sorry if you if you don't isolate somebody down in a quote unquote open kinetic chain way, you don't know what the quadricep can do. You actually have to test it in isolation and see does it have the capacities to to take the load that it's going to be that is going to be requested of it during the tasks that you're asking it to do. And so what frustrates me is where you'll see people, you know, professionals trying to change the way somebody's moving but not taking stock whether or not they have the abilities to do it. You know, they'll say, well, they can squat really heavy weight. It's like that doesn't tell you what the quad can do. That just tells you that they can squat. You know, when, when you – you know, the thing I also say a lot of times is the test tests what the test tests. So if you're testing somebody's ability to squat – you are testing somebody's ability to squat, and that is it. You're not testing their ability to generate torque out of their quadricep. That takes another very specific, you know, test to do that. And so, before you you ask, and, and what you're getting at is, you know, when you look at the deceleration task, in order to decelerate with a flexing knee, it, what happens when you do that is you create a very large external knee flexion moment from a ground reaction force, and and it's. That's not as complicated as it sounds if people feel overwhelmed by, by biomechanical phrasing. It's just saying it's a very large lever arm bending that knee. And so it basically is asking the quadricep to give an equal and opposite uh, reaction to that. And if the quadricep doesn't have the capabilities to do that, it's going to have to find a strategy that shortens that lever arm so that the quadricep doesn't have to work as hard. And and that's where we see that hip strategy come in where, you know, they throw their shoulders forward, they flex at the hip. They're, they're trying to move their center of mass forward so that the ground reaction force comes more vertically, gets closer to the knee and ask less out of the quadricep. And so, you know, you can bark at them all day long to flex the knee. It just ain't going to happen. And then the... Secondarily to that is the visual biomechanics that you see, trunk sway to the ips lateral side, uh, in, you know, hip interrotation, knee abduction, all these things that we try to, foot pronation, all that we try to correct. And it sounds like what you're saying, that's just your body's way of dampening forces because it wasn't going to get it from the quad. So it's just got to do that somewhere else. So I think that confounds the whole notion of valgus in general. You know, yes. it's this it's this kind of boogeyman where the pendulum swings on that too, where valgus it's all about valgus, and then it swings now to oh, you know, let's just we don't worry about valgus, we just let them move. You know, any movement's beautiful yeah. movement because we're all uh, special <laughs> butterflies. You know, no, valgus, out here and valgus, valgus will tear the ACL. So valgus can, is okay. the mechanism that tears the ACL, the, and that's what. So can can you clear up some of the fringe? on that and kind of bring us back to the middle on valgus 
Yeah, so Valgus, the, the question you have to ask is why Valgus? Not not whether or not Valgus is good or bad. Valgus, Valgus is just more force or less force. Uh, and so if, if you're seeing Valgus with a stiff knee, that we can say, uh, and, and I'll actually, let me define that a little, even a little more. If you see Valgus with a stiff knee at a high rate of of change of velocity, uh, you know, what rocket scientists will call delta V, which is actually different than acceleration. If you see valgus with a lack of knee flexion at high velocity, that is a dangerous strategy. There are potentially some freaks of nature out there who can do that and somehow have enough hip strength and enough uh, control that they can handle that. But that's not something they were taught. That's something that they developed naturally. And this is where I get into the person who's never torn their ACL. If they're using that strategy and they are a high level athlete who has been performing this for like a decade like that, I'm probably going to leave that alone because they know how to do that. But when I see it, and again, specifically in somebody who's post-op ACL, you know, we, there, there's a study out there. We, we covered on PT inquest. I can't remember the, the citation right now, but it's, it's in one of our episodes where they looked at the amount of force that goes through the body when you land with a with a soft core, so in other words, you're not engaging your core, versus really contracting and stiffening your core as much as possible. And guess what? When you stiffen that trunk, the amount of force that goes into the system goes up. And that's because you've taken away some of that dampening, as, as, as you noted there. So, you know, when we see, you know, and I give the example when I do the course, I show the example of somebody landing from a drop vertical, uh, a drop vertical landing. Uh, so they're just dropping off of a, uh, of a, a 30 centimeter box landing on one leg. And it's that instant where they're sticking that landing and they have a huge trunk lean. They've got internal rotation at the hip with adduction. They've got pronation. They have all these things going on and people are just looking at that going, ew, that looks terrible. I need to clean up that trunk. I need to clean up the hip. I need to clean up. But what they're missing is that the knee is not flexing. And so if the knee is not flexing, they're got to find that, that dampening somewhere. Um, what you'll notice, though, is a high-performance athlete, especially somebody that, that's elite, they will stiffen all that stuff up, and they're going to start taking some pretty big forces through that knee. Well, so that's the question. Is it, is it a trade-off of performance to reducing risk? Because, you know, ask a basketball player who's got to do like a double or triple jump to go up for a rebound, you know, repeatedly, boom, boom, boom. Okay, land softly. No, you're going to land stiff so that you can take advantage of that elastic property and, and spring back up. Or, you know, if you're on the field, landing from a jump and then cutting, you know, laterally and creating a, a pretty immense amount of stiffness in that, in that instant of time. So is that soft landing cue, can that, be, can that be Trump to say, well, just flex your knee, but you can still land hard and like put a lot of force into the ground, but just try to, to bend that knee a little, you know, and we say more than 30 degrees or so, because it seems to be that 25 to 30 degrees is ACL mechanism. Is that kind of a, yeah. is that a trade-off we can get away with to try to keep performance so, high? So if you were, if you were going to teach somebody, and, and I'm not saying it's impossible to teach somebody, but if you were to teach somebody a strategy, my feeling would be you'd want them to make their initial contact with a flex knee ready to explode out of that. And so the idea there is they'll be flexed at like 30 to 40 degrees and ready to hit that stiff because that stiff 
stiffness is going to give them that that kind of bounce off, so to speak. Uh, so so allowing the muscle to kind of give you that kind of recoil from that. Now, that being said, I I, I think a, a lot of ACL tears happen in a situation like and you see it all the time in sports, specifically soccer and, and American football uh, and, and basketball as well. But I see this a lot in, in these types of sports where, where an athlete, you know, let's say American football, you got a wide receiver catches the ball. They were focused on catching the ball. Now that they've caught the ball, they go to make an athletic move, uh, what they commonly call in, in American football, a, a, a move of athleticism. And so they start to explode into a direction that they're going into. And a lot of times as they're making that exploding uh, change, they'll realize that there's a defender there that they're about to engage with. And so – What's already happened is that they've initiated that movement towards the defender, and now what they're saying is, oh, shit, I need to change directions away from that defender or get tackled. And so once I've got myself in that motion, what may be the only strategy to get me out of that situation is to plant my foot, brace with my knee relatively straight, and just propel myself out of that in another direction. Now, if I don't have the capacities to do all of that, what will happen is the system will get overwhelmed and the ACL will get torn. Now, that person does not have the history of knowing that this is bad. And even if their brain knows it's bad, they have no way to stop it from happening. And so this is where a high, high-performance athlete if you get them in just the right situation, you know, the injury is going to happen. And there, there's not – in my mind, there's not really anything you can do any more than, you know – I mean we've seen it. An athlete making a move and, and their leg snaps. OK, well, how do you prevent that? I mean you just it, – it, you, know, you know, the bone snapped. I mean it's just – once it gets enough load, it's just going to happen. And so you know, it's, it's just the system trying to find a solution that's going to work for it, not realizing that that catastrophe could be around the corner. But again, I, I don't see that as something that's, you know, you can train away, so to speak. We actually, I think we talked about a, an exact example of this at, at CSM. I think it was Tyron Matthew. Tyron Matthews, when he played for LSU, and now he plays for the Chiefs, but he, in college, he went up and intercepted the ball, and the receiver was on the ground below him, and so he had to do kind of do a maneuver to avoid because the receiver was trying to reach up and grab his legs and he had to plant really hard and he's a super explosive athlete. And then it was, it was boom. It was a suit, but he landed with a super stiff leg. If he hadn't have torn his ACL, he probably would have sprung five yards the other direction and then went for a touchdown. But it was, yeah, yeah it was that moment that was just not avoidable. But again, it's, it's a high performance athlete whose brain is telling the body do every, under no circumstances are you allowed to get tackled here. Do everything in your power to avoid getting tackled. And unfortunately, the only path through that is, and, and if you give the situation just right, the way I put it is that person's ACL is already torn before their foot hits the ground. Like everything is in place that the ACL is going to get torn. There's nothing they can do about it at that point other than just completely give up the play, which no athlete consciously is going to do that. They're not thinking about that. This is, this is also why it's really difficult to, um, you know, a lot of the training that we do to, to quote unquote fix mechanics uh, or, or kinematics is to, um, 
is, is what we call an internally focused situation. So the person, you know, is focused on what their knee is doing in space. And so, you know, when an athlete is on the field, the, the last thing they should be thinking about is what their knee is doing in space. They're thinking about the defender, the ball, the, you know, where do I need to be positioned? How can I get from point A to point B as explosively and fat, quickly as possible? And again, it's none of this is thinking about what that knee is doing. So unless you're training somebody in a completely distracted environment and people will say, oh, I do lots of distraction training, uh-uh, not finished, completely distracted environment at 100 percent speed, you're not training and, and not to mention Ideally, it should be on the exact playing surface in the exact environment that they will be engaging in during their actual sport. And so the difficulty of that is so high. And again, I'm not saying not to. What I'm saying is, first and foremost, make sure they have those capacities in place to allow them to, to have those strategies that they're going to pull from be a little safer because at least they have the capacities to do them. Can you remind us and the listeners how fast the ACL tears from foot contact to to boom? So uh, the the best study for that was Koga, uh, I think twenty ten, where they they took uh, they used video analysis of two different angles uh, of and of people tearing their ACL. So uh, they just collected anybody who tore their ACL over the course of a of a certain time span that had two video angles of that ACL tearing, so they could create a three dimensional model, uh, and that's how they recreated the 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 exact mechanism of that ACL tear. And then of course uh, Carmen. Quatman did the uh, the the amazing cadaveric study in 2014, published in 2014, showing the exact actual force profile going through the knee when the ACL tears and exactly what position the knee needs to be in. That's how we know this. But Koga showed that the ACL tears in four one hundredths of a second from initial contact to ACL being torn is four one hundredths of a second, and so. That's that's faster than I mean, your foot's in contact and the ACL is torn before your brain has any chance to actually tell the knee to do something different than what it's doing. By far, well, you gave a, you give an example in your course that from the time that Usain Bolt is in this his stance in the blocks, gun goes off. He makes his first move from gun to first move is thirteen milliseconds or thirteen. Right. Uh, Hundreds of a second. Thirteen hundreds of a second. So three times as slow as your ACL going. And that's him making that's him making his first twitch. That's not him making any sort of athletic move. That's him initiating any now. Some people could say, well, he's a very fast runner. He might not be the fastest initiator, but but still, he's a superhuman elite athlete. The idea that you're going to have a high school athlete do this is and, – and let's be fair. I, I, I work ACL a long time. I love my ACL patients. A lot of them – you know, a lot of this has to do with training age. So it's a matter of they're trying to do a fairly high-level sport that they don't have a ton of experience with quite yet. And so that's a lot of our high school athletes are just not – they're just not trained enough yet. And so I would imagine their reaction time being a whole lot slower – than 1300s of a second. I mean, and again, you know, if you sit through just that knee course, that's a, that's a whole, you know, plus the, the, the applying science to practice in the whole knee course, that's nine and a half hours. And it takes me nine and a half hours to say, 
It's the quads until it's not the quads. Mm -hmm. That's essentially <laughs> what the whole course is. <laughs> yes. It, uh, and, well, and to get people from, from there through to that conclusion, it, it takes nine hours. It really does. Well, I'm about three-fourths of the way through. And I remember mm -hmm. at CSM where you talked about kind of this, like you're leading them through this path. And if you just start with it's the quads until it's not the quads, you know, if, if somebody doesn't just believe you right off the bat, they're just going to ignore that. But what you do is you lead them to that conclusion. Uh, yeah. Really, really, you just teach them how to think. And, and um, you know, the logical explanation is address the thing that has the most effect on the thing. And that happens in, in regards to the knee and especially post-op ACL it happens to be the quads. But I think if it were anything else, the first three quarters of the course, it, it, could, it didn't have to be a knee course. It could have been about anything. Like the, that's right. That's, and, that's and, the and, and I and and I'm a I'm a very strong believer in you can't teach anybody anything. They have to believe that they thought of it themselves. And so what I'm doing is just trying to lay out this path. And I'm kind of watching the audience for the occasional. They got it. They got it. Mm -hmm. They got it. But I'm not telling it to them. I'm trying to walk them through it. And then when it when I do the the big reveal, it's it's obvious. It's like oh, you clearly. <laughs> Hey guys, Quinn Hennick here. We hope you're enjoying the interview so far with Eric. If you didn't know, Eric has four online courses right now on his website, The Science PT. One of those is called Applying Science to Practice, and the others are Complex Understanding for Simple Solutions of the Hip and Knee, or you can just do Knee, or you can just do Hip. I can personally vouch for any information that Eric puts out, but these courses in particular are phenomenal. I've taken them and I've learned so much. You can find the link in the show notes. Also, go and subscribe to Eric's podcast, PT Inquest. Now, like right now, pause this one, subscribe to PT Inquest, and then come back here. Speaking of online courses, Jared Maynard's pain science course is currently free for anyone to take. We can't guarantee how long that will last, but it's at least going on right now. Go to the link in the show notes and use the coupon code COMMUNITY. Speaking of free, two more things. We've launched free training programs with coaching. Right now, we have a home-based training program for those without traditional gym equipment, and we have a powerlifting program. To get the free programs and join the free Facebook community, you can find the group link in the show notes. Hashtag squat up. Lastly, we just finished a five-part webinar installment called The Adaptable Business, where we do interviews with a live audience all about creating agile and sustainable business solutions. All five webinars are free, and they can be found on our website. Head over to the show notes. Okay, back to the show. So... Valgus, you know, valgus is this general term of, of different movements. You've got a combination of hip and turn rotation and tibial rotation and, and knee abduction and kind of the, all of those things are what you manifest to see like, oh, valgus, and then secondarily trunk lean and, and foot pronation, weirdness, all that type of thing. So it, it matters because it's, it is a way to tear the ACL when there are other constraints in place, like a relatively straight knee. 30 degrees or less. So it matters in that sense. What the difficulty it sounds like is it's hard to change it 
it's hard to necessarily prevent it in certain high performance situations. So then the, there's this school of thought of, well, why don't we train, purposely train into valgus to, to build the load tolerance of the tissues or perhaps even build the structural resiliency of the, of the tissues that are at risk uh, so that it is more ecologically valid on the field. What are your thoughts on purposely training into these positions, progressively loading? Yeah, it, that's a thing that uh, it was brought up a while ago. Um, there was actually a, a Division I uh, college program that was actually training their linemen to squat into valgus because they were trying to give them strength in valgus. And the idea being that if they find themselves in valgus, they have the strength to get out of it if need be. And so they were doing their, you know, they would do their squats and deadlifts and that kind of stuff in a, in a, you know, more quote unquote normal fashion. And then they would do it into valgus as well with fairly heavy load to just have them work through that and out of it. Now I'm, I'm not saying good or bad. I think, we have to ask ourselves what the what the purpose of the exercise is. That's always the question that needs to be asked. So if I'm having somebody doing a heavy squat, I just, you know, sometimes my goal is I just want to put as much load on this system as I can. So whatever strategy gives me the heaviest weight, uh, that's what I'm going to use. Um, that may be the goal, but it, it, it may be the goal of, oh, I want to get as much quad as I can. Well, then I'm going to change the biomechanics of that movement so it's more quad. Uh, now, if I'm saying I'm trying to expose them to a valgus load, well, yeah, I mean, and that would be how you would expose them to a valgus load. Now, the question being is, do they need it or is that helpful? I I, I honestly don't have the answer to that. Um, to me, when I think of the limited time that we have in the weight room with an athlete, um, I don't know that I'm going to spend a lot of time going into that. You know, and th- this is where, you know. Some of you may be working with somebody who, you know, you have a strength coach that's really into like a, you know, sometimes they're like really into like a CrossFit type thing or an SFMA type FMS type corrective program or they're like PRI or whatever. And to me, it's like, you know, we've got, you know, we have strength coaches that I work with that it's their profession. They're tasked with a job. It's not my job to do their job. And so where I would say, and this is getting back to what we've talked about before, I don't care what they're doing. I care what they're not doing. So it'd be, here's a list of some basic things I need you guys doing in the weight room. I need them. I need athletes being exposed to a heavy load. I need them working close to their max effort so that they have experience working close to their max effort. Whether or not they they make gains is, is a little less of a concern of mine. I just want them to have exposure to working with heavy weights so that when they're in the middle of a sporting task and they're asked to engage their muscles at max capacity, they have experience with that uh, as opposed to their muscle not knowing whether or not they can generate those types of forces. And so that's, that's what I think is extremely important. Now, if those things are getting accomplished, hey man, blow up balloons all you want. I don't care. Um, work on the valgus position uh, and, and try to make them more resilient in valgus. Um, you know, we we used to joke about, uh, you know, we see the strength coach having our seven-foot basketball center doing a, uh, a Turkish get-up with a kettlebell, and we're like, man, it looks like a baby giraffe being born. What are you even, <laughs> you know, why – I don't know why they have to do that, but you know what? As long as you, as long as you ate your vegetables and, 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 and your, your main serving there, you know, do all the, have all the, the, the dessert you want uh, over here on the side. And so, yeah. So it's just opportunity cost. It's not that any of those things are, are bad as standalone. It's just, if you, if, if that comprises your entire session, 
and you've not you've not tested the tissues with adequate loading, then they're just simply not prepared. Well, and I can just hear Scott Morrison in my ear yelling, "Tissues have adaptive ceilings." And when it's his thoughts, it's like you can only load into valgus so heavy that's not going to be heavy for any of the other tissues. And my God, can you imagine in the clinic, like, oh, we're doing drop jumps or something off a 30-centimeter box, and I'm like, all right, I want you to really drive that knee in there. <laughs> and they do what I say, and man, they just happen to combine it with a really stiff knee. And <laughs> if that, oh, Blamo. Lord. Well, what's funny is, uh, so uh, Christian Thorberg's group, they did a study where they looked at people who had progressed into elite athletics, but never torn their ACL. And then had them do drop vertical jumps as a test. They were a subset that that quote unquote failed the drop vertical jump because they went into a pretty significant valgus. But when they actually tested them, they had insane hip strength. Because we, we always think, oh, well, they go into valgus because they don't have enough hip strength. It's like, you know, a great way to strengthen the hips land in valgus. Because when you land in valgus, if you don't go through to complete uh, complete collapse, it's your hip muscles that have to that are getting loaded. You look at the biomechanics of it, and you're you creating a fairly large moment arm for the hip abductors when you go into valgus. And so it's a great training modality for the hip abductors if you wanted. Now, again, as we're talking about here, I don't know. This is this is like, you know, I'm not going to teach my post up ACL how to use a hip strategy. I'm not going to teach them how to. Uh, you know, yeah, let's go ahead and go into valgus and, and work on, you know, just having enough strength there. Uh, there are lots of other ways to go about that, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's the thing is, you know, I, I say that too, is a great way to have really strong hips is to have a really weak quad and go try to do stuff. Well, there's some prospective literature on that with patellofemoral pain, if I'm not mistaken, where I think that those who went on to develop patellofemoral pain actually had stronger hips and more of a dynamic, uh, valgus at the knee. I think I remember seeing something like that kind of crossing over. Yeah, so uh, a, a strong hip allows more valgus, if that makes sense, because the more valgus you go into, the more the more hip strength you need to be there. Otherwise, otherwise you're going to collapse all the way. Uh, and so, but the problem is, is that when you're in valgus, you're putting a higher stress to the anterior knee. There is more patellofemoral contact stress when you're in valgus. Now, again, the question is, is this patellofemoral joint conditioned to take that? And if the answer is yes, then it's not a problem. If the answer is no, well, it doesn't matter how strong your hips are. It matters how much load the patellofemoral joint is taking and how much it can tolerate taking. And so people, people talk about, oh, well, you can do a hip strengthening program and that's, that's going to you know, reduce the patellofemoral pain. And they think it's because it's going to change the tracking. It's like it doesn't change the tracking at all. That's not why they go into that position. What you've done is you've unloaded the patellofemoral joint while you're doing a bunch of hip strengthening stuff. It calmed down and then you let them go back to stuff. But it didn't, quote unquote, fix anything as far as mechanics, most likely. Is there a point where we're cueing somebody, explicitly cueing them out of valgus? Question one and question number two, can we actually even change that strategy ultimately when we when they go back to a you know their their sporting environment? Well, I don't think verbal cues so if you're giving somebody verbal cues to stay out of Algus, um, I, I don't want to say that doesn't do anything. Um you know, and so I'm talking like an internally focused type situation. What it's doing is a, is is 
preventing them from going into valgus. So now you're loading different structures. And so if your goal is to put load into structure to condition those structures, you know, an internal queue is a great way to do that. So internal focus is a great way to do that. Now, if you want to have somebody learn to choose a different strategy other than valgus during a task, you have to find a way to make it so that they don't go into valgus even when they're not thinking about it. And that the feedback that they're getting is automatic and inherent, meaning that if they go into valgus, they have to know they went into valgus without them actually thinking about their knee position. In other words, something would there would have to be something that their knee would hit or, or something to tell them, oh, don't don't be in that position there. So we use some strategies uh, where, where we use like different types of, types of gates that they have to go through. But I'm not concerned about valgus. I'm concerned about knee flexion. And so I can get knee flexion by basically just restricting the the space they have to operate in. So it forces them to have to flex their knee to do the task. But they need a quad for that, Eric. Yeah. And so I can't do that until they have a quad. And, and so the funny thing is, is that, you know, as smart as all that sounds like to create gates and all this stuff, we, we did that. And what we found was that it was only a challenge for them if they didn't have a quadricep. But the second they had a quadricep, they're like, this is stupid. This is not hard at all. <laughs> so again, the reason their strategy is, is crappy is because they don't have a quad. And if, you know, I I have, and, and that's we just re, I just released some free case studies um, from uh, from the course, so the case study section of my course. I just posted online. Most of it is online for free. It's about forty minutes worth, and I show force time curves and force position curves on people's quadriceps over the course of their of their um, of their treatment. Basically, their 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 dysfunction so to speak and you can see and neither one of them the cases i present are, are acl acl is its own animal um these are like patellofemoral pain or microfracture that kind of thing and you can see how it takes months and months even years to restore full knee extensor function and so you may be telling yourself well it's been six months the quad is plenty strong i'll tell you right now it's not it's not generating the torque necessary and it can't tolerate those loads. And so, you know, when you say, well, their quad is strong, that's why they're, that's why they're showing me these, these bad coordination or dysfunction. Uh, what I'll tell you is until you show me a true test, I'm going to tell you that it's not, uh, strong enough. Well, just to jump in, I think that's why I found one of the main reasons why I found your, your articles really, really helpful and why I haven't spoken a whole bunch here and now, just because this is, Maybe an example of what you were talking about before we started recording about, you know, the the art of, of teaching is that you got to make it seem very obvious when you come back around to the to the main point. It's got to seem very common sense and you kind of lay the groundwork before you get there. But when it comes to testing the quad and just making sure that it is where it needs to be for for us to then expose these athletes to these other stimuli so that they can make that return to sport better and, you know. Uh, we can essentially do our due diligence in serving these people. Um, we're doing a pretty piss poor job, I think, across the board. And as I was reading your um, article, Why Quad Index Matters, that Quinn referenced before, you laid out most of the obje objections that I've heard or would anticipate someone saying. Um, and just, you know, someone saying the quad's strong. How do you know? What have you done to test it? 
well, we've done single leg squats. Okay. And then you break down what the force vectors look like and how they don't look anything like what they need to be able to withstand when they're trying to decelerate pivot and then accelerate again. And why, you know, something like, um, uh, a leg extension or an inline, um, inline test, uh, maximal exertion is a better measure of what we care about initially and making sure that they can tolerate these, they can tolerate stresses or produce force in these lower speed contexts and then be able to transition into these, these higher speed, higher effort contexts too. So I don't know, it's just been really helpful for me to contextualize where I think we are, or at least the environments that I've seen to find myself in as I treat people and as I see other people treating athletes and just how we need to get better. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, you mentioned, so like in the course that I do, it starts with the scientific method. <laughs> that's what we have to start with. And then it goes into dynamical systems theory. And then it goes into basic like force position, force time curves. What is, what is, what do we even mean by force? What, what do we mean by torque? What is peak torque? What is rate of torque development? What is impulse? You know, these basic concepts of biomechanics. And so all that gets laid out and so that's why the title of the course is Complex Understanding for Simple Solutions, because once you understand, oh, I need to look at some very simple things first and make sure that those are kind of checked off. And, and that, I think, is um, getting to, uh, people to understand that a very simple concept like this person lacks extensor, you know, knee extension moment, uh, internal knee extension moment, um, as simple as that is that is rooted in a very, very complex understanding of what's really going on with this individual. And, and, you know, again, the dynamical systems model is that you, you, you don't try to wrestle the system. The system is way too complex and way too smart for you to constrain it enough to make it do what you want it to do without a lot of work. And the likelihood is you're probably missing something. And so when you attack, and this is this is dynamical systems across the board, not just with human movements. So we talk about economics, we talk about weather, we talk about all these things. When you attack a dynamical system, you attack it at the inputs where you can. So you try to constrain or allow certain inputs. So can they use the quad? Can they not use the quad? Can they use the hip? Can they not use the hip? You take away things. And then you you give it abilities, and that's where you actually have an effect on that system more than anything. And that's, you know, understanding that I think is is, you know, really key. We'd like to thank Eric for being on the show. Check out the show notes to find Eric's website and courses. And remember, this is only part one of this awesome conversation. And of course, thank you to my homies, Jared Maynard and John Flagg, for steering this ship alongside me. And thank you, the clinical athlete community, all six of you, for joining us on this journey of knowledge and improved practice in both the gym and clinic. If you want to dive even deeper into the clinical athlete community, you can check out all that the Clinical Athlete Forum has to offer, which includes our Clinical Athlete Academy courses, amazing discussions and networking with professional clinicians and coaches, as well as students, and just our overall hub of knowledge in regards to athlete health and performance. Thanks, everyone, and talk to you soon.